0: So today we're here in the studio and it's a Monday. And for me, a Monday always means one thing, it's no meat Monday. There's a lot of reasons why many people would consider having an alternative to the current meat, whether it be ethical reasons, health reasons. For some people, it could be for environmental reasons. For me, it was because I wanted to run faster marathons. Some of you have probably already eaten a plant-based meat alternative. I know I certainly have, but have you ever considered lab-grown meat? That's real meat grown from animal cells in the lab that apparently tastes just like regular meat, but without the need to kill animals and just a fraction of the environmental impact. Hi, I'm George Mathedon, and you're listening to Create the Future from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. Today we're talking about the future of lab-grown meat, but what are the engineering challenges of producing meat in this way? How much better is it really for the environment? And when will we actually see it on our plates? I'll be talking with Dave Hunt from the Good Food Institute, an NGO working with scientists, businesses and policymakers to advance cultivated meat cultivated meat can reduce the climate impacts of meat by up to 92% and reduce air pollution by up to 94%. And Greer Jackson, a science journalist at the BBC and host of the podcast The Climate Question.
1: One thing we come back to again and again is food and diet because it's one of the biggest contributors to climate change.
0: To just begin, tell me a little bit more about yourself and the work that you do. And that would be amazing. Thanks, George. I work for the Good Food Institute Europe. Uh, we are an international nonprofit that
2: seeks to bring about a more sustainable and just food system to drive innovation in this space and ensure that we're actually getting really good products in the alternative protein space to market.
1: My name's Greg Jackson. I'm a host of a BBC World Service podcast called The Climate Question. And in that, despite its title, we're not questioning whether climate change is happening, but we're questioning why we find it so hard to save our planet and and what we can do about it.
0: So today we're talking about the future of lab-grown meat. It's also known as cultivated or cultured meat. Dave, we'll probably start off with you first. What actually is cultivated meat? Good question. Uh, Cultivated meat basically, put very simply, is meat that's made without
2: the animal. And the way that this works essentially is you take a small sample of cells from an animal biopsy, the animal walks away just fine after this, and you take those cells and you grow them in a liquid that we call a medium. It's like a a broth and it contains all the things that a cell needs to survive, grow. And then all this takes place within what you might call a fermenter or cultivator. The engineers will call them bioreactors. It's basically a big stainless steel tank. And it supports the growth of these cells and keeps them happy, keeps them in the right temperature range so that they grow and divide. And then you stimulate the cells that they will actually differentiate or turn into a different type of cell. Up to this point, they're just stem cells. And what typically what you want is them to turn into either muscle cell, but also things like fat cells, which gives conventional meat the sort of textures and flavors and things that we that people really, really enjoy about it. And also things like connective tissues that basically holds all those cells together that allows you to produce meat. Why is it important that we actually grow this lab-grown meat? Cultivated meat, if done properly, can have a fraction of the environmental impact compared to with the way meat is produced today. We know that meat is quite problematic in terms of the way it pollutes the environment. releases uh, greenhouse gases into the environment, pollutes water, the land use issues, et cetera, around it. And we know that from the data we have, cultivated meat can reduce the climate impacts of meat by up to 92% and reduce air pollution by up to 94%. It can also use 90% less land. And that means that all that land can be freed up for other things like biodiversity projects or more sustainable ways of farming that are not so intensive and not so polluting. Another thing is around antibiotics. So over half the antibiotics that we use in Europe at the moment go into animal agriculture. And that's leading to things like antimicrobial resistance that kills an estimated 130,000 people in Europe every year, which is crazy. And that's a problem that's going to get worse and worse as time goes
0: on. And a lot of health organisations and governments are really getting
2: concerned about antimicrobial
0: resistance. And is it something that is still confined to labs? Can we in restaurants, buy in shops. Uh, cultivated meat is only sold in two countries right now. Uh,
2: the first country to authorise it was Singapore back in 2020. And then the second one was the United States, actually only a number of weeks ago. It's available in three restaurants worldwide. To a large degree, that's kind of just around, there's just a lack of supply. Companies just can't produce enough of this stuff right now. And I know you work, say, in engineering of electric vehicles for, for motor racing, right? Hmm. So think of where... Electric Vehicles were 15 years ago. That's where cultivated meat is right now, right? But what we do know is actually there's over 100 different companies worldwide that are working on all kinds of different things. So the, the products that are available at the moment in both Singapore and the US is cultivated chicken. because one of the easiest things to produce. But for example, in the UK, you've got Oxford's Ivy Farm. They've teamed up with a company in Northern Ireland called Finbroke, and they're working on a cultivated Wagyu beef. So you know that beef that has all that like fat marbling through it? They're trying to produce that. A lot of different things that are happening in this space
0: right now. That's amazing. I would love to taste the wagyu beef, if I'm honest. Uh, that's a personal yeah. thing that I would love to indulge in. That would be great. Yeah. And Greer, for you, in terms of why you believe uh, the topic of cultivated meat or lab-grown meat is important, um, what would kind of be your perspective?
1: David's absolutely right. There's broad recognition um, in the scientific community that the scale of livestock farming that we have today is absolutely unsustainable. We've got acid rain. Toxic algal blooms and of course climate change and livestock contributes something like 15% of all planet warming gases. So that's way more than flying or shipping. And you can think about it like this, you know, if it were a country, it would be in the top five biggest contributors in the world, right? So it's a really important area that we need to tackle if we want to stay within the planetary boundaries and have a happy, thriving population, And so some people do think cultivated meat has an important role to play, but there are quite a few critics in the field as well, especially around the impact it has in terms of its carbon footprint. And I think part of that comes from the fact that it's an industry that's not really operating at scale, and they're also relying on a grid that is fundamentally powered by fossil fuels, right? So I know David mentioned a few studies about how it might be 96% better for the environment, lowering greenhouse gas emissions. But equally, there are studies saying that it might be several times worse. I think... There is a space for it if people want to eat it, firstly, and but also if the industry manages to be very energy efficient in how they produce it and grids are going to be powered with renewable power or at least low carbon energy, right? And I don't think we really know any of the answers to those questions until we're a bit further down the line.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I guess in my world of electric vehicles, this is a very similar thing. If you charge it with the current grid infrastructure, then we're not quite there just yet. So that is something that uh, governments and you know, policymakers definitely have to incentivize as well to make sure we're, we're generating that energy as, as clean as possible. On that point, in terms of, I guess we mentioned free potential restaurants where we could get it from, what does it actually taste like? Have any of you actually had any just yet you know have you been able to do this as part of your jobs kind of you know michelin star restaurant experiences
1: <laughs> i wish i mean maybe david has i haven't but we did send a, a, a local reporter
0: to Huber's butchery
1: which is the place in singapore where they serve it and he said it tastes just like chicken and the texture wasn't bad but the texture was more like a chicken nugget rather than like a chicken breast kind of vibe. I don't know if you've tried it, David. Was that your experience?
2: I've not actually tried it yet, but some of my colleagues have and they say, surprisingly, it it tastes exactly like chicken and, and actually they really enjoyed it. I think some of the feedback we've seen from places like Singapore and the US where there are limited people who can Access it is has been really, really positive. I think, yeah, what you say, it's, it's kind of like a chicken nugget type of product, but this is like, as I say, the prototype. This is the leading edge of where this is going. And there's a whole lot of other stuff coming behind here it is chicken. It's probably not surprising that that's what it tastes like.
1: Genetically indistinguishable, right? Like you can't tell that if you were going to go and sequence the DNA, it's genetically indistinguishable. So
2: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. it should taste exactly the same. I think what will be interesting and, you know, what David's sort of alluding to is that at the moment we've kind of got this, this isn't a very nice way of framing it, but like the mushy products, right? Like the beef burgers, the meatballs, the chicken nuggets. And I think what would be really exciting in future is if when we get to the the steak, for instance, or the the sort of more structured meats that are actually quite hard to reproduce yeah. today with the technology that we've got. But we're in the, what was it, 10 years ago, David, that um, the first burger was eaten on TV by <laughs> a food critic, a Dutch food critic, and that was in London 10 years ago. So really, you know, if you think about it this way, agriculture's had thousands of years. And if you go back from than that, evolution's had a lot longer than than that and you know this industry is only 10 years in so it'll be exciting to see what what will be on the menu in 10 years time.
0: I guess David a question for you again is there's a lot of engineering actually involved in all aspects of that process which a lot of people would never really think about you know the engineering challenges to overcome in this industry. If you could just tell us a bit of those challenges that would be interesting and just that process.
2: I mean the first thing is around cells and cell lines. But what we need in that are cell lines that are really well-optimized for producing this that become much, much more efficient. There's a lot of parallels, a lot of learnings from, say, the pharmaceutical space here where they have cell lines that are super well-characterized. And you've got all these research tools of how to understand how to grow them at high densities and make them you know, super efficient. We just don't already have that. The growth medium then is a whole other thing. But the growth medium is basically, as I said, a nutrient-rich bath in which cells grow and it gives them all the, the things that they need. But it's also one of the most expensive elements for cultivated meat, largely because, as I say, the original protocols came from the pharmaceutical industry. They've just got different margin, a different business model and stuff. Where with this, what we're trying to do is reduce the cost as much as we possibly can. And there is a huge international effort there to do that, to bring it down, to use food-grade ingredients that uh, are much cheaper. But also you can do a lot of stuff around, say, upcycling of waste products from processing in other areas of food. So you build in that like whole circular economy, sustainable piece to it. And then it gets into the bioreactor, bioreactors to say basically just fermenter tank controls the parameters such as metabolite levels, pH, biomass accumulation. But the designs that we have right now are not really what we need for cultivated meat because they're based off of what the pharmaceutical industry uses. And they have a leading edge of about 25,000
0: litres where we need maybe half a million. That's really, really hard to do. And in terms of the next generation of, of products, whether it be steaks and, and chicken breast, uh, rather than just burgers and and nuggets, what work is you know currently going on to actually solve the problem on that front in terms of scaffolding? I guess that's the the kind of key term there in terms of the meat structure and texture to take it to that next level.
2: Yeah, scaffolding is an interesting one. This is a kind of a again one of the really leading edges of this space. Scaffolding, basically, um, to sum it up very simply, is providing a three D structure using food grade ingredients to which then cells can attach onto and they can grow and mature and then essentially what you can do with that is then recreate the sort of textures you might get with a more complex cut of meat like steak or salmon fillet or these types of things typically you use stuff like plant proteins plant polysaccharides some other fungal ingredients etc they have to be food safe obviously they have to cook properly they have to function in the right way there's some more complicated stuff going on around 3d printing of food and there's a lot of work done to be done on you know bringing that to to commercialable sort of scale and making it efficient. That, that will be the next generation of these things that comes down the track. But with research, you can get there. You know, you can make a, an electric vehicle that's that has a, a long enough range that people can drive from city to city or is comfortable or whatever it might be. It just takes time to get there.
0: Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned the growth medium, and we kind of know that can also have a high environmental cost. I guess uh, you can kind of speak to this as well. Maybe you can speak about that in terms of your perspective on how to mitigate that or reduce that as well.
1: Well, yeah, the industry is definitely hoping to move to what, you know, David calls food grade media, basically like a less purified, but also less of a carbon footprint comes along with that, right? Um, and they're also hoping to move away from um, something that's used in this this broth, um, which is called FBS. It's fetal bovine serum. And this is taken from a fetus of a cow. So it's, it's the blood of a fetus of a cow. So the industry has also been trying to move away from this as well for the ethical and, and moral dimensions. And actually, one company, um, Eat Just, has says they've managed to do this recently. It's the first in, in the industry to do so. So that's just been in the last couple of months, I think. But there are some criticisms about how possible it is to move away from this. I've read some um, scientists being worried about unwanted bacterial growth if you move away from a pharmaceutical grade. And the other concern I've heard is that you may be recycling crops, as David said, but you may also be growing something from scratch. Maybe you might be using algae or um, soy in some capacity, and that may need fertilisers and fertilisers also cause problems like the toxic alcohol blooms and nitrous oxide, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. So again, I think a lot of this impact is unknown because the industry doesn't really publish exactly what it's using. It's part of their IP. Um, So we don't really know, but I think time will tell on this one again.
0: So I think we'll stick on that topic. I guess you've got a lot of energy required to keep all these cells alive, the equipment running. How do we kind of go about mitigating those costs associated with that as well? I'm not sure if there's been much progress on that front.
1: I think it's really hard because in some sense it's out of the industry's hands, right? But I have spoken to one company in South Africa and they were using solar panels to provide all their energy for their bioreactors. So, you know, there are steps that can be done. But, you know, if if not, then, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, you're working with bioreactors that need to be kept at 37 degrees and and some of them are smaller, but there's hope in the future that these are going to be much, much bigger, as, as David said. And so the idea of how energy efficient some of these really big bioreactors might be, there's a big question mark around that. So there is a concern that if we have a really inefficient system here we're going to be putting further strain on our transition to a renewable grid this is a time when we need to be using less and less energy to ensure that we get to net zero not more so there are concerns around that as well
0: Thank you for that. And and I guess we also spoke about land use. I think Dave mentioned it. And a cultivated lab might take up considerably less land um, than a farm would. And, but by itself, I guess that's not really enough. So it depends upon what we really do with that extra space.
1: Yeah. Do we, you know, take the, all that land that cows and sheeps have been grazing on and, and plant trees and, you know, regenerate rainforests or... Is it going to turn into a new hotel complex? Is a golf course going to be put there instead? And again, that's sort of beyond the industry's control. And that's down to, I suppose, in some ways, local planning authorities about what happens with that land. So, yeah, it absolutely provides an opportunity. But the question is, will that opportunity be taken?
0: Hmm. And this is a question for Dave or yourself in terms of how does this lab-grown meat actually stack up against other meat alternatives like you know plant-based proteins or pulses?
1: I don't think there's any there's any argument here that plant proteins like pea and, and soy especially the really unprocessed one like whole chickpeas and lentils they're always going to be better than lab meat or conventional meat and um, it doesn't mean they don't have any carbon footprint by the way it just means it's way less and that's the argument here if we want to be meeting our climate goals we all just need to be eating less meat whether it's conventional or lab grown right and eating way more plant-based proteins
2: i think yeah just well, there's actually a couple of things i'd like to pick up on on that and i'm going to preface all of this by saying i think we all want the same thing which is a food system that genuinely is sustainable into the future and you know the point about you we should just eat less meat like absolutely that's true i mean by 2050 the world population is going to be just shy of 10 billion people. And it's predicted that the demand for meat is going to be anywhere between 50 and 100% of what it is now, greater than what it is now, right? So we've got a problem there, but people don't really want to change their habits. They understand these things, but they keep buying meat anyway. And so we need to, I think, offer alternatives that people can really buy into and actually will, you know, are affordable and that they will enjoy. And I mean, people don't stop driving cars because cars pollute the environment. We build electric cars, right? So the, you know, need to think about what the parallel sort of uh, alternative technology to this is. There's a couple of things around the media and the FBS question. Uh, Actually, all companies have have indicated they're moving away from that because one, it's expensive. Two, it's inconsistent. And three, yeah, it has an ick factor associated with it that people don't want to eat anyway. And then the energy thing is really interesting because what we know is that most of the energy that goes into producing cultivated meat is the actual cultivation. So yes, renewable energy is super important here and has to be a part of that. If by 2030, we don't have very serious dependency on renewable energy, you know, we're going to be in trouble. But what, you know, a cool thought I can throw at you is that uh, the UK, for example, in May of this year, produced its one trillionth kilowatt hour of renewable energy. And it took 50 years to get there. But the way they're going, it's going to take five years to get to the next trillion. You know, cultivated meat is not a silver bullet and it requires lots of good decisions to be made. Not just in the optimization of the technology, but in the optimization of lots of other stuff. And I think that's what Gray is getting at as well.
1: Sorry, do you mind if I come off the back of something? So I think what we see with like the plant-based meats, you know, the the veggie burgers and the soy sausages and what have you. We see increasing levels of demand for that, but we also see increasing levels of demand for meat. And I wonder what David's perspective is on whether we might just see an increased demand for all, but not a reduced you know, not reduced interest and not reduced demand for conventional meat at the same time? And, and what position that might put us in, really?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question, Greya. And I think that there's kind of a couple of things happening there with regards to demand for meat. Like de- demand for meat is going up, but a lot of that is de- is sort of tied to population growth. And also we talked about, you know, places in Africa and Southeast Asia that are becoming more modern and their middle classes are growing. And so the demand for meat because it is that a status symbol for a lot of people, and it is very nutritious for a lot of people, is growing. We do actually see in certain places that the sales for meat is dropped a little bit. Now, a lot of that, again, is down to the macroeconomic situation in which we live. The food industry has been hit really, really hard. There is evidence to suggest that plant-based or, let's say, sustainable protein options can replace conventional meat. But yes, we have to ensure that that actually happens. And again, it just comes down to making these things good enough. That You know, they have to be things that people actually see as a, as a realistic option. But you know, there's certain things you can do that are very simple around how a particular product is positioned in a supermarket, the tax regime that these things operate under, uh, how it's positioned even on a menu. If you go into a menu and you have a plant-based section and you have a, a meat-based section, people gravitate towards the meat-based section. But actually research shows that if you mix the two together in just one list, the people who select plant-based will go up, which is really interesting because there's obviously a lot of psychology behind this. And again, I'll say it again, we, you know, we both want the same thing here, is to get to a place where this genuine way of producing protein that is sustainable and that feeds 10 billion people in 30 years' time or 35 years' time. The question is how we get there. And cultivated meat is one of the really promising technologies that can get us there.
1: Mm, and And as you speak, you know, I was just thinking, you know, if meat demand is projected to go up, In populations um, like Africa and India, as they have a growing population, but also a growing wealthy population who can afford more meat. But there's also like a justice angle here, a climate justice angle here in that these people haven't enjoyed the lifestyles that we have led for uh, generations where we've flown and and we've eaten lots of meat. Uh, You know, lots of activists will say they, they should be allowed to lead the lives that we have led for so long. And on the same time, we've got these new meats coming out, these lab cultivated meats. It'll be interesting to see how all of this will
0: pan out, really. Within this, where do you see, or when will we eventually see it on our plates? I guess you've got these free restaurants. When would I potentially see it? When I go, you know, would I have it in my local Nando's at any point? Seeing within the next 10, 15 years, when do you think? It's hard to say, right? And as you will know from the electric vehicle industry, it's hard to predict where you're going to be. You can
2: try to map it out, but it's hard. Hmm. We think you're going to start to see it in kind of like, mainstream restaurants towards the end of the 2030s and then into supermarkets. But it really depends on proper investment from you know public investment and, and governments to get behind this and to put it into their agricultural strategies. And also be thinking about the other thing, that great mentioned of land use and how are we going to responsibly use the land that this could free up and get it down to a place where it's actually at price parity with conventional meat so that people will actually buy it. Because price, taste and convenience are the things that govern consumer decisions and we know that and they, they won't change just because
0: it's maybe more sustainable or more ethical or whatever it might be it has to be affordable. Sure and on that in terms of the economic cost how much does it currently cost at the moment and what cost do you think it needs to come down to to make it competitive you know especially for Communities where socioeconomics becomes um, a bit more of a challenge, somewhere like where I grew up in Peckham, a lot of the school kids leave school and they just go to the chicken and chip shop down the road. So, could we get to those kind of prices?
2: You're absolutely right. Like, people, as I say, are not going to buy it if it's not cheap enough, and it has to be done in a way that's fair for like we are consumers, but we're also citizens, and we need to kind of bear that in mind when we make a transition towards. Hopefully, more sustainable system in the future. To answer your question, we know that in Singapore, people pay in the region of about eighteen Singaporean dollars for good meats, cultivated chicken. That comes to about ten pounds forty in UK sterling, right? But that is un- undoubtedly being sold at a loss because it's a prototype. So they're they're selling it to get people's perception of do they like it? What do they what do they like about it? How can we improve certain things? And again, when you're at a very the leading edge. In an industry, that's what you have to do. Independent research shows that with the right investment, that by 2030, we can get it down to about £4.80 per kilogram, which is competitive, okay? But it needs public investment, it needs research, and we need to be sharing the findings of those research
0: with the scientific community and building upon those things. That would be amazing if we could get it to that in in such a short period of time. And Greer, what would you say the cultural and societal view is currently on cultivated meat is there a demand for this environmentally friendly kind of form of meat or are people kind of just averse to artificial meat now i do no meat monday it wasn't that cool before but now people you know just get on with it uh, from your kind of um, perspective from the research that you've done and from people that you speak to what's the cultural and societal view
1: i mean we spoke to a lot of people who were going into hubers the butchery uh, that serves this cultivated chicken in Singapore, and. They all seem to really like it. But, you know, that's a bit of a biased sample, given that they're there and they're interested and and they've booked a table. Um, I did think it was interesting that they only serve it on Thursdays, one day a week, because they have so little meat available. And yet it wasn't fully booked every week. So I don't know whether that speaks to something. Um, We did speak to a researcher who had conducted multiple surveys around the world, China, Cameroon parts of Europe as well. And her research seemed to indicate that there was interest, that there was a market. Around half of those surveyed would try it if it was better Um, for the planet. The lowest rates of acceptance were in Africa and some places in Europe. China had very high rates of acceptance, I think around 50 or 60 percent. So there appears to be a market That said, that's what people say. Um, And what they do is sometimes a very different thing.
0: Would you try it, George? I would love to try it. Whether I had it consistently or not is another question. I actually understand. I think in the... So my heritage is Nigerian. I was born in the UK, but heritage Nigerian. And I can imagine my parents and so forth being you know, very apprehensive to begin with uh, because what they have is working for them, is competitive in terms of price. And even that, the prices are, are kind of going through the roof. So they'll probably want to always stay with the lower uh, cost option because, yeah, it just works for them. But I would try it personally.
1: When I say low rates of acceptance, you know, I'm still talking about 40, 50 percent, you know, nearly half the populations this researcher surveyed in Africa still want to try it. But I think the other thing that we need to caveat here is in some ways we're not really talking about, you know, I'm talking really broadly here, the global south. People living there are not big contributors to climate change. We're broadly talking about the West here. And for a lot of people, beef, dairy, uh, meat is really important nutritionally for them when in a very malnourished environment. And, and, and so that's also something that's worth pointing out.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. There's a lot of attention at the moment on the news with regards to cultivated meat. Uh, but is there just a lot of hype? You know, how much of a role do you think it will actually play in dealing with the climate crisis?
1: I don't think we know. If I'm honest, you know, I looked into this for a programme, written an article about it, and I've spoken to people on both sides, you know, that are very, very excited about it. And, you know, there are lots of investors behind this, millions of pounds worth of investment. Then again, I even spoke to the head of Eat Just, Josh Tetrick, and he was he was even saying it's a huge gamble here, and we just don't know if it's ever gonna pay off. So You know, on the engineering technical challenges that David's described, there is perhaps even some uncertainty around that. Whether it will help climate change or not, I think if we have renewable grids and if we have a very energy efficient process, then, yeah, there's every reason to think that the emissions from this will be much, much lower than conventional meats. And it may well be that lab meats are much easier to stomach than eating pulses and plant proteins you know behavior is one of these things um when we're looking at trying to reduce our impact on this climate that is really really hard to um tackle you know people know that eating red meat is not so good if you eat lots of it for your health um, it's not so good for the climate and yet people continue to do that and so maybe lab meat or cultivated meat is an easier behavioral change
0: It's been very interesting learning about cultivated meat, probably one of my first conversations digging into the depths of it and to see all the parallels uh, surrounding energy transition or food Thank you both, David and Greer, for your time. Really appreciate it. And, yeah, excited about the future of me and what it has to hold. And hopefully one day in Peckham, I can go buy a restaurant and, and perhaps just get um, some for that £4 that you mentioned, Dave. Who knows? I'll be waiting. <laughs> it's all possible. Thanks, George. Thanks, Greer. Thanks. You've been listening to Create the Future a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was presented by me, Georgia Maffadon and was produced by Anand Jagatia. To find out more about the podcast and the work of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and I'll be back for another episode in two weeks time.